Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, the opportunity to hear from you, to receive what you have for us. And even if we haven't come in this morning with a, a heart prepared for that, I pray in these very moments, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts and till that soil of our hearts. If it's hard, break it, Lord. That we could receive the seed of your word and that it would grow and have life within us. Thank you for the power of your word. And King Jesus, we bow before you today and give you honor and praise. Thank you that you are the one true king and that your kingdom has come and will come. And may we see it, may we advance it as you've called us to. May we proclaim you above all others. Lord, in these next moments, we also pray you open the hearts of our our little ones and that you would bless them and grow them up in you, that they would see you, Jesus, and see your grace and know your love and your mercy, and they would find their life in you as well. We give you praise today, all for your glory, Lord, and for our joy, we pray these things. Amen. So kids, four through fourth grade, welcome to go to your classes. Invite Daniel to come and read from Acts chapter 17 today, and I'm assuming you can tell us what page that is on. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Acts 17, 1 through 15, and you can find this on page 926 in your pew Bibles in front of you. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, when I was a boy, my grandparents owned a motorhome. 
my dad's folks, uh, some of our fondest memories and funniest moments were in that uh, adventure on wheels. Every few years, seven of us would pile in and we would drive to Disneyland, camping along the way with no real rush to get there, much to my chagrin. And every morning, without fail, as soon as we'd roll out of the KOA, my grandpa, Russ, would begin singing like Willie Nelson, which I debated trying for you. But I can't do it, so you know the words. On the road again, going places where I've never been, seeing things that I may never see again, and I can't wait to get on the road again. I think that was the second verse. I looked it up, but he would always sing that verse, and maybe all he knew. Well, that's what popped into my mind this week as I read Acts 17, on the road again, the Via Ignatia, one of history's uh, most famous roads. And we see Paul and Silas and this, this other team, we're not sure exactly who's now gone with them because the the, the wording changes here. Luke goes back to they went to, instead of we went, and then he seems to join them later. They move from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and then on to Athens, which we'll see next week, Lord willing. So I thought I would share just that peek into my childhood, a snapshot. And that's all we really are given here in these two cities, isn't it? Just a snapshot, a, a picture, a short picture. And maybe it's because we've seen this picture before. And I wonder if we're not getting tired of it. I hope not. Paul powerfully and persuasively proclaims the gospel. Jesus is Messiah. He is king. And from that message, some receive and believe. Others object and reject. It's the same story. Kind of like my grandpa Russ. We've heard this song before, but it still makes us smile. There's a few more maybe distinctives or highlights we could pull out. Uh, so let me give two, and then maybe two observations from these uh, two cities. Demographically, Thessalonica is about 100 miles from Philippi. So it's always it's interesting to me when they, Luke casually says they moved on from there or they went to, and often that journey was arduous, to say the least, if not dangerous. Uh, we see some of the pictures of the most dangerous. We'll see them in Paul's uh, ship traveling journeys later in Acts. And so maybe with that context, then a hundred mile journey on foot over a few days was nothing. But it was still arduous nonetheless. Uh, Thessalonica is another major city. It's the uh, largest city or second largest city in Greece at that day. About 200,000 lived there. It was the capital of Macedonia. And so following Paul's custom or I would probably say strategy, going to the major cities, preaching the gospel, and then from there, uh, believing and hoping that that new church, the new life of that church, would do the very same thing that Jesus had told them to do. You will be my witnesses in your Jerusalem. So he probably preached that, say, hey, Jesus said, you will now be witnesses in Thessalonica and in the greater Macedonia and even to the ends of the earth, that it would have that same ripple effect in and from the city in every place. And so that was his strategy. Unlike Philippi, there is a synagogue here in Thessalonica. And so at least there's a handful of Jewish believers. And that was part of their first strategy, was to go and proclaim who the Messiah was, the Messiah that the Jews believed in and were looking for. 
It's an interesting switch probably of language. We would say Jesus is the Messiah. But Paul's message was probably to the Jews, the Messiah is Jesus. Because they were believing and looking for a Messiah. When we often speak that or proclaim that message, we even have to explain what Messiah means and even who Jesus was to many. Paul proclaimed who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah that they were looking for. Paul gives a little bit of a distinction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 between the Thessalonians and the Philippians, or at least those two cities. So it comes to life as we see Paul's writings back to these very same churches in these cities that he planted. This was years later when he wrote this letter back to the Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, we were relentless in our pursuit of you because God's love is relentless in his pursuit of us, and so we proclaim it to you. Well, we're not told much else. You can read through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians and actually glean a lot more than Luke tells us here in Acts. They moved on to Berea after this conflict, and we'll speak to that in a moment. Berea was about 45 miles further on the Via Ignatia from Thessalonica, a much smaller city. We know even less about this city and these people. It's interesting that throughout history, throughout church history, more believers have said, we need to be like the Bereans, Maybe then they've said, we need to be like any other local church. We need to be like the Philippians. We need to be like the Thessalonians. We need to be more like the Ephesians. I'm sure that's been said, but I would wager that it's been said more often. We need to be more like the Bereans. From one line, really, that, Paul, that Luke gives us about the ministry that Paul had in Berea. Did you notice that? We'll highlight that in a moment. The character of the Bereans. But Paul also had high praise for the Thessalonians. And even more so as far as we know, because we don't have a letter recorded from, the, from and to the church of Berea. That doesn't mean one wasn't written. We just don't have it recorded. It's not in, captured in our scriptures. What we do know, though, about these Bereans is that they were hungry and thirsty for God's word and humble enough to receive it, looking for Jesus as the fulfillment Another observation, beyond the demographics, although this, I guess, is included in this observation, we see, again, diverse fruit in these cities, in these places. Jews and Greeks are believing, and some not, but there is a diversity of the response of belief and faith in both of these cities. And then Luke, again, calls out these leading women who are putting their faith into Jesus, just like at Philippi with Lydia and I think it's noteworthy, especially considering the culture, which I touched on a little bit last week, that Luke wants to make sure that we know that the church from its beginning, from its inception, has influential leaders who are women. I think maybe more importantly, though, when he calls it out in these three consecutive cities, that maybe he wants us to see that those who are already leaders, these women who are leaders and influencers, in life, in maybe in politics, in culture, in business, they were putting their faith into Jesus Christ. For me, that's noteworthy, and I think we, we maybe all need that reminder as we look and wrestle with how 
how to share and live out our faith, how to proclaim Jesus in the midst of our culture. And when it seems so obvious that affluence or influence, positions of of authority or power, seem to be barriers to the gospel, when there seems to be no need for another to save, apparently, it seems to be barriers to the gospel being received. But I'm thankful for this reminder that none are beyond the reach of Jesus. There's no wall he won't break down. There's no heart he can't reach and get a hold of. As people turn and give their life and bow and surrender to another king, what seems to be an obstacle or a barrier for us does not have to be. And there's many who are simply putting on an affront of influence and authority and prominence when they know desperately they still need saving. And the message of Jesus, the true Savior and the true Deliverer, the true King, is still to be received. And yet for some, some will harden even more. For the Jews, their prominence, their position, for some of the Jews, I should say, turned into even a greater agitation, a hardening of heart. As the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So these Jews are jealous. It's very similar to kind of the response that Jesus had in his own ministry, isn't it? These Jews don't want to give up any of their power or their position. So they form a mob. They are literally rabble-rousers, as the word says. And persecution comes in different forms, and we've seen that again and again throughout Acts. We do have an enemy that is actively opposing the gospel of grace, the message of life, the rule and the reign of King Jesus. <coughs> He's kind of, this picture came to mind. He's kind of like the little brother who is hiding, maybe in the closet or around the corner while you are building the tower of blocks. And just waiting for that moment when you walk away so he can jump in and knock it down. Come on, all of you who are older brothers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's kind of like Satan. (laughs) Similar. And all of you who are younger brothers know exactly what I'm talking about. You're constantly doing the ministry of Satan, coming in and destroying what has been erected and built. Okay, We know we have a real enemy, and we've seen it again and again. So those are some observations. How about applications? That's where I really want to spend the time here with these snapshots, the tale of these two cities. That's all we're given. But we do see some things that are powerful, simple but powerful. Two applications. One, the word has power. Second, the king is Jesus. Pause. I love the accusation. That's why I titled my sermon this way. The accusation the Jews brought against Paul and Silas. These men are turning the world upside down. I want to embrace that. I would want us to be a people that would say, okay, bring it. If, that, if, that's, if that's being said of us, we receive that. Because there's some irony in that, isn't there? These men are turning the world upside down. In fact, they're setting it right side up again through what they're proclaiming. They're not trying to disturb the peace. They're trying to bring in true peace and proclaim the one who alone can bring peace. They weren't weren't proclaiming a new king. They were proclaiming the eternal one. 
So the, the irony of that statement that's lost on the Jews as they are trying to raise the rabble is not lost on us with our ears and our perspective, and may it be true of us. Could we receive that? We're about the same mission. Ultimately, we share the same vision. Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's maybe the best way to capture the vision of the church as a whole, as Jesus told us to pray that. We know it's an already. He came and said the kingdom is now here. The kingdom is at hand. He's the one that ushers in his kingdom as the true king. And yet there's this reality of the gospel and the promises that were given that the kingdom is not yet here. It has not yet been fulfilled. It is at work in the midst of the world. But the king is Jesus. Well, that's application number two. Number one, God's word has power. Did you notice, it's harder to notice what is missing from a passage than what is there before us. And we don't build strong theological arguments based on silence. They're usually weak. But it is, I think, noticeable when you read the snapshots of these two cities of what isn't said by Luke. If you are aware of what he has said and kind of highlighted in all of these other cities, there is no evident supernatural work. There is no sign or wonder or healing or vision Now, again, without building an argument from silence, because simply because Luke doesn't say it, doesn't record it, doesn't mean that they weren't happening within this city also. Hearts and lives are being transformed. So to say the Spirit wasn't powerfully at work would be wrong. Arguably, his greatest miracle, taking a dead heart and making it alive, taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of life. So the Spirit is actively at work, but I wonder if Luke simply wanted to highlight the power and effectiveness of God's word. You can't miss that in these two cities. Uh, Certainly, Paul wasn't doing anything different, as was his habit and his custom, to preach the word, to open the scriptures. But the way Luke describes it in these two cities is different. It's noteworthy, I think. The effectiveness and the power of God's word seems to stand out. Whereas in these other cities, what often stands out was the Holy Spirit's healing or vision or walls shaking, chains breaking, those kinds of uh, powerful signs as well. One of our core convictions as a church and as an alliance movement is knowing and living God's word is vital. And there there may not be, I preached on that already in this series because certainly that was vital for the life of the early church. But there may not be a more succinct picture of this than in these two cities, both the ministry of the word, the way Luke describes it, the power and effectiveness of God's word, and then the response to it by both of these cities, the believers in these cities. Look at verse 2 again of Acts 17. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And those, verb, those verbs just jump out, don't they? He reasoned, explained, proved, and proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. I, I, remember, I remember stumbling on this verse in some apologetics-type study of how to share our faith. Well, Paul proved it. How did he prove it? And actually, the Greek word is 
means to lay alongside, to establish an argument of comparison. He proved up to a point that by faith alone, someone must receive. There was, there was really no more that could be said that Jesus could not be the Messiah because of no one could answer that. And so he led them all the way up by laying aside this argument through scriptures that they had nothing more to say and by faith alone either had to step in faith to believe that yes, indeed, this is a, this, it, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for, and many did, or step in faith to not believe. I'm putting my faith somewhere else. I'm putting my faith that you are wrong. They were both acts of faith, ultimately. That's, how he, that's what the word means, that he explained and proved as he preached. Reasoned and preached seem different. Reason seems back and forth kind of dialogue and preaching and proclaiming is maybe more traditionally what we are accustomed to in this kind of a context. He did both. I've preached on preaching a number of times already in this series, how Paul preached like Stephen, who preached like Philip, who preached like Peter. It's almost as if they all had the same teacher of how to preach. Okay, Jesus himself taught them through all the scriptures that everything was about himself. That's one of the primary ministries he engaged in in those 40 days following his resurrection. Now that the light bulbs were going on for them continually, okay, and now we remember all that you've said. Okay, we get it, we get it. But they were still coming to now see with new eyes as he was opening the scriptures. In fact, that very word that Luke uses here, Paul explained, that word is the same word he uses of the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24 when they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures to us? Same word. While he explained the scriptures, it has an idea of giving knowledge, of opening eyes, of enlightening. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was preaching like Jesus preached. He was going through the scriptures. And we we don't know what scriptures Jesus went to Uh, I've preached on that passage often. How great would that have been? The greatest Bible study in the history of the world. It says elsewhere that Jesus went throughout all the scriptures and showed how everything was pointing to himself. That sounds like a long study. So we know he didn't go to every single passage, although likely he could have and talked through the storyline of scripture of how everything was bringing into fulfillment the promises that were given from the beginning of time. The story of Scripture teaches one story, and it's about Jesus. And that's exactly how all of these early, early preachers preached also. We're not told which passages Paul went to here. And I think if in either case, maybe Luke likely didn't know for sure, but if in either case Luke said these passages are what were taught, we'd probably only or primarily go to those passages, wouldn't we? Instead of saying, Which passages could he have gone to and then been like the Bereans doing our own study through the scriptures of, I wonder if Jesus taught them this passage because here we see him. Likely, Paul went to some of the same passages because in his other preaching we've seen in Acts already, Luke does cite Psalm 2, 16, 110, 118. Those are the ones that at least I I scanned and found. Uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 he cites. We could assume many others, but those are ones that we know he used in other cities, so likely he went or touched on at least some of those. Certainly, he was already developing and preaching, preaching through themes of Scripture. There's major themes 
home and exile that run throughout Scripture, creation, restoration, slavery, freedom, and deliverance, covenant, so God's promise is kept, promise is broken by man, and ultimately then kept again. Uh, Kingdom, God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. You can preach themes throughout Scripture and really go to every part of Scripture, as Jesus did when you read through the Gospels and you see the way he preached, the way he taught, he quotes from every part of the Old Testament. That was the only Bible of the day. It was Jesus' Bible. He quoted from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms, from the histories, from the wisdom literature. He quotes through every part, giving evidence of the power and the truth of God's word. And that's why we have hope in God's word as received the word of God because it was Jesus's Word. By the way, do you, do you know which book of the Old Testament Jesus quoted from the most frequently, according to the Gospels? I believe it's Deuteronomy. Yeah. I mean, test me. Isaiah was often quoted, but I believe it's Deuteronomy, the, the law, the second giving of the law. Jesus taught how everything fulfilled, he fulfilled everything. Every promise finds its Yes, it's amen in Jesus, Paul would write. So certainly Paul in those days he had with the Jews where he reasoned, these were ways that he was preaching through themes and then highlighting messianic promises and passages ultimately to get to a point where someone had to take a step of faith. So I have no no more argument. They They may land with their step of faith and say, I don't like it, I don't want it. I think you are wrong, you're deluded, you're deceived. Any one of those conclusions could have been come to, and obviously they were by some. But they were steps of faith to hear this message proclaimed, to see the scriptures open. Someone would have to take, a a Jew would have had to take a step of faith to say, no, I'm going to believe you are wrong. Many could not take that step, and they put their faith into Jesus. That's often a, a way of reasoning that I found has the most traction today. That we all have a measure of faith, and we are employing it. We are looking into any number of places, authorities, or by our own perception and observation into our world, and we are taking steps of faith, ultimately each day, but we undergirded by a worldview that we have decided upon makes the most sense or has the best possible help and hope for me and or for others. And we take steps of faith to say, yes, I will live accordingly. It will bring about purpose or fulfillment or joy or impact, let alone whether there may or may not be an eternal life, though so many in our culture are uncertain of. I found that that argument of faith, of letting someone recognize the power of faith in their own life and the way they are employing it is no different than mine and no different than yours. See, oftentimes when you say you're, you're a pastor or a preacher, that often shuts down the conversation. Others might say, Man, I, as they get to know me, I wish I had your faith. I wish I had something that rooted me and grounded me like that. But, and I've looked into so many different faiths or religions or spiritualities, and I just, I just can't do it. I wish I had your faith. Trying to get them to see that, in fact, you have deep faith also. We are putting it into different places, into different authorities, ultimately, I am bowing before a king who is Jesus. You are bowing before another God. 
that God takes various names, forms, titles. That was not in my notes. Where am I? How can we become gospel fluent like Paul was? That the word would have power in and through our life, in our ministry. We may not be in a ministry where there's a public proclamation like this one, a preaching or proclaiming to an audience, but we're all called to preach. In fact, in our whole life, we do preach already. It just depends what message we're proclaiming. But we should be in regular daily connection and conversation with people who are in need, who are longing, who are looking, who are trying and wanting to be grounded and find hope, who hopefully see joy and life and love and faith in us at work and in process working. And we are able to reason and open the scriptures together, not to say, well, I believe we'd have something rooted and grounded. How can we come, become fluent like that? Remember, Paul spent his whole life studying the Old Testament scriptures, and then before he ever went out on these journeys, he spent years studying and learning everything he could about Jesus. In fact, Jesus met with him directly, and he learned from him as well as learning from the other apostles. It's not going to happen. We don't become gospel fluent with 45 minutes a week on a Sunday morning. Hopefully your Bibles are open. Gospel fluency is daily. We need to learn from Thessalonians and the Bereans, a few things that we see uh, in their response. In fact, we have to go to Paul's, to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians to see, you know, the Bereans kind of get all the credit, I guess, for being eager for God's word, for daily looking at the scriptures, which, of course, we would rightly say, yeah, we should be more like the Bereans who don't just believe everything they hear but open their Bibles with an eagerness to see Jesus. Is it true? The Thessalonians, look, this is what Paul said back to the Thessalonian church in uh, chapter 2, verse 13 of his first letter. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. It has effect. It is powerful. The dispute continues today, doesn't it? If the Bible is, is words of men, then take them or leave them. Take them as a guide or some form of wisdom to be gleaned, to round out your worldview. But if they are the words of God, as Paul says, you receive them as the very word of God, not our words. That changes everything. That, that belief alone can turn the world upside down. Ultimately, turn it right side up. Rightly, we would learn from the Bereans also, not necessarily in their nobility, we don't really even know what that means, as Luke calls it out, but in their humility, their eagerness to test the words through the scriptures, there's a, there's a, a hunger and a thirst. There's no apathy there. They're humble to receive. So their whole course of their life has been in faith one direction, and now this message is saying, same faith, Jesus is that Messiah, but there's a fuller picture that we haven't seen that is now being revealed. And it did require a significant change from ultimately religion to relationship with a living God. 
to bowing before this king who was recently walking amongst them who lived and died and now Paul is proclaiming rose again. There's a significant change, right? The ceremonial, ceremonial system and the law and the tabernacle and the temple are, are, are all gone because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised. There's an eagerness and a humility that we should learn from and apply from the Bereans as they looked to Jesus. I think it's noteworthy. Their eagerness wasn't for Bible study or Bible trivia or Bible knowledge or Bible memorization. All of those things can have their place and be good. And certainly a regular rhythm of mine is memorization. But their eagerness is to see Jesus in the Word. That's what they're looking for daily, to try to see Jesus, as Paul is saying through those themes and through those passages, that should be our hunger and our thirst also. So more for a knowing than for a knowledge. And just when they came to believe, they took that step of faith, those that did, and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, their eagerness didn't change. Their hunger, I'm sure, would have continued to now see scriptures that they had known maybe their whole life and see them with this whole new lens, this clearer picture, like putting on glasses for the first time when you knew things were blurry, but you never saw clearly. Maybe it's like reading old love letters from your spouse that were written maybe while you were dating or engaged or early on in marriage and reading them again after decades of marriage and faithfulness. You'll read those differently with the perspective of promises kept and fulfilled. Same as we go back through, they go back through scriptures and see them with Jesus, the promise fulfiller. So that eagerness and that hunger for his word to see Jesus in every page and every story, and it won't always be obvious, but to get there through the storyline of scripture is, is a primary and powerful work in our own life and then for the ministry of the word that we are called to. The second thing, the, the promise keeper is Jesus. The king is Jesus. The word has power. The king is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the one we proclaim. Ultimately, he's the one being opposed if we are opposed or rejected. When we do share and have opportunities, we can't make it about us. We can use our testimonies of the way God has changed our life. That's right and good and powerful as long as he's the hero of the story, not us but we need to make it about Jesus and, and open up the story and the proclamation of Jesus' very words. If he proclaimed that he is the king, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is calling all to himself, that no one will come to the Father except through him, that the only way to know God, the Father, is to know Jesus and trust him by his very words and his very claims there's a narrow road that he articulates. Let's make it about Jesus. If one's going to reject and argue and not like it, I've also found traction recently in this statement. There's a lot in the Bible that I don't like. And that makes me wonder if it's true. I'm skeptical of my own feelings. So we look to Scripture and what Jesus actually said and did and make it about Jesus. 
The Jews kind of got it right, didn't they? It's ironic. They say, verse 7, these men, they're proclaiming that there is another king, Jesus. I guess they got it mostly right. Not just another king, the only true king. The Greek word here is worth noting. It's the word heteron. I'm guessing you might recognize as another of a different kind. A different king, that's who they're proclaiming. Well, they got that right. He is nothing like Caesar. When Jesus, by the way, when Jesus said, I'm sending to you another counselor, the Holy Spirit, he uses the word alon, not heteron. It's another of the same kind. In this case, they're proclaiming another king, one completely different from Caesar. Got it right. He is nothing like Caesar or any other earthly king. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end of the story, by his own claim, the way, the truth, and the life. As he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, so have the world. It is greater, bigger, it is eternal. I wonder if Paul quoted Isaiah 9. I don't know how you could not go there. Isaiah 9, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. No, he is nothing like Caesar. And that day Caesar was not just the emperor, the, the king. He, he and they believed he became divine. That that position carried divinity. And therefore he expected, if not demanded, worship. So to proclaim another king was like blasphemy, was a capital offense in many places of Roman rule. Paul would later write to the Philippian church, who we've just seen in chapter 2 of his letter, Philippians, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King to the glory of God. The question isn't if It's when Jesus is king. And no, he is nothing like Caesar. He is wholly another. He is wholly worthy. A few things that make him so different from Caesar and from every other earthly king. He conquers with ambassadors. Ambassadors that look like you in the mirror. Imagine that. Not with armies His weapons are grace, truth, and love, not guns or bombs or swords. His victory was at the cross, not in a campaign, whether political or military. He doesn't demand others die for him. He died for them, even his enemies. He doesn't have to demand worship because he is worthy of it. Those who follow him do so in love, not in fear. In a quote widely attributed with some speculation, but widely attributed to Napoleon, he said this, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person, probably could say every other king in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. For example, Alexander Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, I love how he puts himself in that group, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force, 
But Jesus founded his empire upon love, and at this very hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus is another king, a holy another king. You got that right. The question is, is he your king? Is he our king? Not just by assent of words, but by the posture of our hearts. Do we bow before him willingly today? The question is not if, but when. That was Paul's message. And ultimately, that's what was turning the world upside down or right side up, Jesus side up. And when you proclaim, especially to people of power or influence or affluence, now no, there's no wall that can't be broke down, but often those walls around our heart are so thick that we just reinforce them. Because what that would require is us getting off of the throne and onto our knees, proclaiming this king is who he claimed to be. And Jesus will not do that by force. He himself said, I stand at the door and knock. That's his posture. Caesar's and Napoleon's and other dictators by force demand it. Jesus invites it. Before we are ever asked to die for him, we're asked to live for him. Ultimately willing to give all but we're asked to live for him and proclaim him. Let me link these two applications as we close. We need to be hungry and thirsty for more of King Jesus, not simply for knowledge, but for knowing. That's our response. May we be eager like the Bereans. May it be a daily walk. As we come to see Jesus and encounter him, naturally our Hunger for the word will grow. I think it can go the other way, don't get me wrong. Reading scripture can grow our love for Jesus. But I think that perspective, that longing for Jesus, the true king, the living God, and therefore wanting to know him and see him will open the scriptures in a whole new way. A way out of grace and love and pursuit the very way he pursues us. I guess I'll invite the team now. Let's respond to the word of God by drawing near to the God of the word. That we would receive it as exactly what it is, the very word of God. So Lord, we want to apply it in the same way that we see the Bereans and the Thessalonians. Grow our hunger and our eagerness, but for you and you alone. As we come to the table, this meal, as I often say, this, this meal doesn't satisfy physically, but it reminds us of our satisfaction in Jesus spiritually. He has broken his body and shed his blood that we might have life and life to the full. And if you are again putting your faith into this king, come to the table. There's elements there in the back. Come humbly. Come again saying, Lord, I don't deserve your grace and your love, but you've freely given it. And if I wait and tarry, like the song, 
The hymn, famous hymn, if I wait and tarry until I'm better, I'll never come at all. Lord, I need you as we already sang today. Come humbly, come hungry, being reminded that spiritually we are satisfied in Jesus alone. And even if this is your first step of faith, you say, I've come up to this place and I've looked to all other things, all other wisdoms, all other sources for fulfillment and satisfaction, and they are empty. They fall short. This Jesus, I have nothing else but to put faith into him, then this is a powerful first step to him in pursuit of him. The disciples, when they first received this communion meal, this new covenant in his blood, it was the night before Jesus died. They did not know. That light bulb had not gone on. There was so much more that they had to still come to see. But besides one of them, they loved Jesus and wanted to give their life for him. That's the line. That's the line of faith that is pursuing this king. So come freely to the table. We want to create this space to respond to the word of power by coming to see and bow before King Jesus. It's the posture of your heart more than the physical posture. But be willing, if needed, to come and to bow, to kneel, to kneel where you're at, or, you're, or this week, to, in posture before Jesus, to kneel before your king. I think there is something powerful in that posture. Though we are not presently before his throne, we are spiritually before his throne. But rightly, the picture in heaven that's also given is one of standing, and I would guess raising of hands and proclaiming in a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. So both postures are right and good in response to this king. The picture of the palm branches waving before the king, as well as the picture of the servant on the floor, prostrate before him. The prodigal crying out for mercy. All powerful pictures respond as the Lord leads. Let me pray this prayer. This is a prayer that A.W. Tozer wrote at the end of chapter one in the pursuit of God. And let it be our prayer. So hear it, receive it, and maybe even pray it back if you are able. O God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and to follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.